Hi, this is Sam Chamberlain, and welcome to Things to Ponder, the sermon podcast from St. Mary's United Church of Christ in Silver Run, Maryland. Follow along with St. Mary's at stmarysucc.org or on Facebook and Instagram. Wishing you peace and good, my friends. But I come to this, again, as we mentioned earlier, I was at General Synod, and some of you may know exactly what that is, others of you may go, that sounds really official, but I don't have any idea what you're talking about. And so I'd like to talk a little bit about that. The last week I served as a voting delegate on behalf of the Central Atlantic Conference of the United Church of Christ to the 33rd General Synod of the UCC. Now the thing that made me very sad about this is that two years ago it was scheduled to be in Kansas City, and what I learned two years ago in Milwaukee when I went as a delegate then was that one of the things that I did, I never did this in school to all my, t- my, all my former teachers are here, I never did this in school, but I said, you know what, from Synod I'm going to play hooky once. When I was in Milwaukee, I went and I saw the Brewers play. Had a fabulous time. Had a fabulous time. Imagine my chagrin when I'm sitting out there, when I'm sitting at General Synod, only to discover that who's in Kansas City? The Orioles. I could have gone and seen the O's if we'd actually been in person. Played hooky. I had every intention of playing hooky again. So to you all, to our online audience, to Freeman Palmer, our conference minister, I apologize. This is my confession. But nevertheless, because of the pandemic, we were virtual, and so the Central Atlantic Conference did the best that we could to try to create a situation where we could do our work as delegates together. And so the conference gathered all of the voting delegates, or as many as who wanted to come, in Annapolis, where I spent the weekend in discussion, collegial camaraderie, and no little amount of focus as we enacted the work of the Synod. And today I'd like to reflect on that experience. I want to start, though, by describing what synod is and what it isn't to the best of my ability. And I come with a little trepidation because there are those of you here, I'm referencing specifically Steve and Linda, who know a lot more about synod than I do, okay? So I hope I get this right. But the United Church of Christ, friends, isn't, never has been, and it seems very unlikely that ever will be, a hierarchical church. There is no one. No one with total authority to coerce behavior in the local church. No one's showing up and saying, here's what you must do. That's not how we function. The fundamental unit of the United Church of Christ, which is the congregation, as opposed to the individual or the bishop or Episcopal leader. There are lots of ways of organizing church. We said the the congregation is the central unit of what we do. The congregation is free to discern its life and faith as it chooses, full stop. And so in this way, synod didn't do anything that we have to do anything about. But, you knew that was a but, right? But the congregations are not left to themselves. In the United Church of Christ, we are bound to one another, not by law, but by covenant. Rooted in our Abrahamic faith, We remember the covenants that God made with our ancestors in faith, and we live out our faith as a body, as a congregation, in covenant. And you're like, well, what is covenant and how does it function? The best way I know how to explain it is that covenant stands in contrast to contract. Covenant on one hand, contract on the other. You all know what a contract is and how it functions. A contract is based in law. 
to boil it down to its most basic components, you do this for me and I do this for you. It is not bad or appropriate. In fact, most of us live our professional lives in that way. I mean, shoot, we even have contracts between a congregation and a pastor. There's nothing wrong with a contract. But our faith does not arise out of law because contracts are insufficient for the matters of faith. Indeed, wasn't it even Jesus who said, an eye for an eye will ultimately destroy us all. An eye for an eye, which is contractual language, ultimately will be destructive. Unfortunately, there are many who view their relationship to the church and view the relationship between churches as contractual, and that shrinks our imagination for what church can and ought to be. Because our faith doesn't arrive from law, it arises from relationships. God says to Abraham, you will be my people and I will be your God. God never says what God will do, and he never asks the people to do anything when he says this. It is a giving. God says, I will give myself to you, and I ask you to give yourselves back to me. Covenant is an exchange, not of goods and services, but of our very selves. It's a profound gift that requires careful nurturing and attention We don't have legal boxes which we can manipulate and move one another if things don't go our way. It requires a healthy relationship. It requires conversation. In the United Church of Christ, we are covenanted one to another. We give ourselves to others as they give themselves to us. We are both giver and gift. And it is in these kinds of relationships that we discover our life and our faith. And we do this through the work of discernment and faith, not power and politics. And so how does this play out in the church? Well, in covenant, each unit of the church, the individual believer, the congregation, the association, the conference, the synod, they are all in relationship to all the others, but do not impose on one another. Synod, its purpose is to call us together in covenant to discern our life together as a national church. As the church gathered, it is often said, synod speaks to the church, not for the church. Hear that again. Synod speaks to the church, not for the church. So when synod takes a particular action, it arises from a deep discernment from the diversity of the church gathered together. And let me assure you that there is a great deal of diversity. I mean, simply allow yourself to think about the geographic nuances of a national church and how that plays out in different ways. It's a hoot, to put it colloquially. But when synod gathers together, when synod takes action, what it is saying, in essence, is that to the best of our ability... We have gathered to listen to God, and this is what we believe God is saying. And it offers that back to all the other expressions of the church. Covenant, then, demands, because we are in relationship with the national church, it demands that we listen carefully and discern thoughtfully in faith. We may not arrive at the same conclusions, But our conviction is that we can share this faith in diversity and in good faith. 
So as I said to one of our congregants this past week, let me assure you that there are times the United Church of Christ inspires me to be my best and truest self. There are times the United Church of Christ annoys me to no end. But both feed my faith when I stay in relationship to myself, to my church home, and to the church abroad. Because I've committed to the covenant relationships God has placed in my life. I hear this kind of call to covenant in the words of our reading from Ephesians. In it, I find a model for our way of faith in Paul's words. Perhaps no other book of the Bible, short of the Psalms, is as invested in what it means to be a covenant people, ready to listen and to speak, to call and respond, to offer and receive. Indeed, the very thesis of Ephesians is what Paul writes before our reading today. He says, God has destined us for adoption as children. Beautiful words. We have been adopted, brothers and sisters, as the very children of God. And surely we hear that with comfort and encouragement that God has chosen you. But friends, pay attention to the language that he uses. He says, it's always in the context of us. God has chosen us. To the degree that God has chosen you, God has chosen your neighbor. And if God is calling us, then we don't get to go at it alone. We always and everywhere go together, which is why the congregation is so central to our life and faith. But it's not just that he calls us into these small groups. The the writer calls us to a wider vision. Later on, he's going to use an analogy, the dividing wall, he says, between Jew and Gentile. And he goes through this to illustrate that God has abolished the law that he might create in himself one new humanity, thus making peace. And so you see, God is always expanding the circle. God is calling you, and then he is calling us, and then he is calling all of us to break down the walls of our society, to imagine a faith that is bigger than ourselves. God is always and everywhere expanding the circle. In fact, this is what discipleship is. What does it mean to follow Jesus? Discipleship means to expand our vision. Discipleship forces us to consider that our faith is bigger than what you and I can see today. From here, from this spot. Faith says that more is possible than what we have. Once you see a couple of loaves and a handful of fish feeding the 5,000, you can't help but wonder what else God is doing. You can't help but wonder what other miracle is God up to in the world? And you can't help but see the possibility that is beyond the possible. Once you see God's goodness everywhere, you can't unsee it. Once you see love, compassion, and justice trying to break out all over the place, you can't help but be drawn to it, participate in it, yes, even speak it into existence. So the writer calls us to discernment. We end this portion of the book of Ephesians with this beautiful prayer. And as he prepares to pray for this people, he names God with the identifier, the one from whom every family in heaven and on earth takes its name. The people who kneel before God in prayer are called to envision each and every person as precious in the sight of God. Not saint and sinner, not inside the church and outside the church. Literally every single human being as being adopted as God's beloved child. And with that vision, that you, 
with that vision, excuse me, he prays for us. This is a prayer for you. He says, I pray that your inner being would be strengthened. Consider what that means for you for a moment. A strong inner being, rooted and grounded in love. That you are loved. That you can show and express love. That what is core to you and to us is not the laws we keep, but the love that we have. One might even imagine the writer coming to this portion, having worked all this theology out, saying that God is breaking down all the walls, and finally he comes to this, pleading. You can almost see a tear coming to his eyes when he prays that you might have power. He's saying, you don't have it now, and it ain't easy to get, but God is giving us power, that you may have the power to comprehend with all the saints, hear that again, with all the saints, what is the breadth and length and height and depth To know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. The Bible's prayer here is that we would see a world bigger than the one we have. That we would see a faith bigger than the one we have. And that we would be faithful in following Jesus to find it. That's Synod's call. It's rooted in our scriptures. Sinner calls us to consider that our vision still needs to grow. You and I are being lovingly called, not coerced, not forced. We are being called to envision a bigger gospel. And if the United Church of Christ does anything well, it is always, always calling us beyond ourselves. I want to share with you a story the way it called me beyond myself today, uh, this past weekend, in a story that we heard from Dr. Joy DeGruy. She told us a story about the Statue of Liberty. You may know a little bit of this. I was completely unaware of it. When I say Statue of Liberty, I imagine that certain feelings, images, and ideas come to your mind. Perhaps you've been there. Maybe you have some memories that are attached with that as well. Certainly for me and my education, I imagine immigration, Ellis Island, you know, freedom, all of this good stuff, yes? And that is indeed the power of our symbols, right? That they bring all these very powerful images and emotions to mind. But Dr. DeGruy encouraged us to think a little closer about the Statue of Liberty, and she directed us to look at the statue's left hand. And she said, what's in it? And we're all like, well, it looks like a box. She's like, well, what it is, it's supposed to be a document, and upon the document is written the date July 4th, 1776, obviously our Independence Day. But the bigger story is what was supposed to be there. That was not intended by by the sculptor. The Statue of Liberty was designed by the French sculptor, of course, Frederick Auguste Bartoli, and he was commissioned to design the statue in 1865. His original design did not have any kind of declaration of independence or anything. His original design had shackles and chains, broken shackles and chains in its left hand. You say, well, why? Friends, it was commissioned in 1865, the end of the Civil War. The Civil War is coming to an end, and race-based chattel slavery was slowly declining. The Emancipation Proclamation had happened, but it took a while for that to be enacted, of course. And so the idea of the Statue of Liberty was that freedom now would indeed expand to everyone. As history recounts it, because no one wants to go on the record with this, American financiers decided they didn't want any part of that imagery. Bartoli wanted no part of the American financiers. And so he said, the chains go in or you don't get the statue, is basically what he said. And so in an unfortunate compromise, 
Bartoli moves the chains to the feet of the statue, where they exist to this day. There are chains at the statue, except if you've been there, perhaps you know this, those chains cannot be seen by a single visitor to the statue. There is literally no way to see them. As I am told, I've never been to the Statue of Liberty. The statue, while certainly meaningful for the stories of immigration, and God forbid we take that away, friends, has almost nothing to do in its original status with immigration. Ellis Island opened six years after the statue was unveiled. Emma Lazarus's famous poem, Bring Me Your Tired, Your Poor, wasn't added until 1883. It was intended to be a symbol of freedom from oppression, that we had finally broken this original sin of America. This, and the symbol of that to this day remains hidden to its visitors. And only in 2019 did the Statue of Liberty Museum acknowledge this truth. The Washington Post had a headline in 2019, 2019 in the Washington Post, and the headline read, the Statue of Liberty was, was created to celebrate freed slaves, not immigrants, its new museum recounts. How does this story change us? Well, probably not much. I very much doubt that Rob will put it on the agenda for our consistory. Like, it doesn't do much for us. But knowing truth expands vision. And it calls us to live in a more complicated reality where God is living and active. So maybe, just maybe, it suggests that there are stories around here, perhaps, that we have not yet heard properly and truthfully. Stories we haven't heard yet as disciples. Actions yet to be taken. Stories that need to be heard, not through the lens of law, but through the lens of covenant and love of neighbor. That's precisely what Paul prayed for us in Ephesians that the Spirit would expand our boundaries of what's true and what's possible. And it was some dude who said, the truth will set you free. For all its complexities and flaws, that's the church that we exist in. We tell our stories, we expand our vision, and in that we can and ought to rejoice. So in considering synod, perhaps our job isn't first and foremost to figure out what to do or to react to things that we find distasteful or struggling. And I know they're out there. Rather, our job is to listen in faith with the expectation that God is calling us to consider that we have not yet arrived at the breadth and length and height and depth of God's love. And that's a good thing. And we were called to consider much in the past week. Resolutions about the UCC as an organization and who gets recognized called us to think about just treatment of employees. Resolutions about the rights of nature call us to consider our earthly home. The resolution I worked on, Israel-Palestine, was a fascinating conversation, not only about justice in another part of the world, but about human rights and also about ecumenical and interfaith partnership. All of these are a call. Hear the call, church. Let us not run away from our covenant relationships, but rather run into them. We may arrive at different conclusions, but it really doesn't matter. What matters is that we live into the covenant of love and discipleship that Jesus has laid before us. And we are in a good ecosystem, a good church to do just that. However God may lead us in the aftermath of synod, let us be assured that God has rooted us in love and is leading us in love as imperfectly as that may be. And in that, we can rejoice.